This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting July 26th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll hear more from James Bajan. He's a former astronaut and currently the director of the Department of Veterans Affairs National Center for Patient Safety. Last week, we talked about shuttle missions. This week, he'll talk about patient safety. We'll also test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First, though, we'll hear from Kip Hodges. He was an MIT geologist for 23 years before recently becoming the founding director of the new School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University. He's also the author of an article in the August issue of Scientific American called Climate and the Evolution of Mountains. I called him at his office in Tempe. Dr. Hodges, thanks for talking to us today. My pleasure. You begin your article in the August issue of Scientific American with this story about you riding a horse in the Himalayas. What were you doing there, and what were you doing there on a horse? <laughs> well, I was working with one of my students um, in the actually what used to be the Kingdom of Mustang. I still refer to as the Kingdom of Mustang, which is uh, actually part of Nepal now, but it's very near the Tibet border. Um, I was trying to weigh the pros and cons of doing a little extra field work or going back to Kathmandu and I finally decided that I could get a little extra field work in with my student if I figured out some fast way to get back down to the airport. And so I uh, hired this horse from one of the uh, local people. You were you were told uh, the horse won't go down that hill afternoon. Yeah, pretty much. And and I didn't really understand that at the uh, at the outset. I thought <laughs> this is a pretty crazy thing. And then I realized that basically this horse was just smart enough to realize that every afternoon an enormous wind came up in that canyon, um, and uh, he just sort of shut down. And how is that all related to the the real big theme of the article, the relationship between weather and uh, and tectonics? Well, I just thought it was a fun place to start because the winds in that particular canyon are extremely strong, and they're basically strong because of the very... A high topographic gradient that goes down from the Tibetan Plateau that's at an average elevation in there of uh, something over 4,000 meters down to the Indo-Gangetic Plains. And so it's like falling off the edge of a, of a table as you come from the Tibetan Plateau down through the Himalayas and into the peninsular part of India. Um, and as a consequence of that, um, there are a great many meteorological processes that uh, sort of define what the local weather is like. And one of those things is that um, sort of uh, either up or down, down canyon winds that are related to the heating of the Tibetan Plateau um, during the day. And your research there, though, has has uncovered this very deep, literally deep relationship. Between... Certainly implies it implies that you know we've known for a great many many years now that uh, whenever large mountain ranges like the Himalayas are built, they have an impact on the local weather. They actually have the capacity of steering the local weather. And so, uh, but, but I think one of the things that's really interesting and one of the motivations for writing this particular ar- article is the fact that um, it may very well be a two-way street, one in which um, that microclimate, once it's set up as the mountains begin to build, 
uh, has a feedback implication of exactly mechanically how the mountains grow um, through time. And of course, it obviously has an impact on how the mountains waste away because of the erosion associated with very strong precipitation, in this case in particular associated with the Indian summer monsoon. If you get a lot of rain, you're going to get that kind of erosion on the surface. But we're talking about uh, processes that are going on very deep underneath the surface too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the interesting uh, ways to look at a, a mountain range is that uh, areas that have very high mountains also have tend to have very thick uh, crust, continental crust. And uh, in those particular places, um, the fact that the crust is substantially thicker than the crust on either side of it uh, means that it's um, sort of out of equilibrium with its surroundings, out of a mechanical equilibrium with its surroundings. And as a consequence of that, um, the mountain range has a tendency to want to spread laterally under its own weight to essentially smooth out those differences in elevation and differences in crustal thicknesses from the mountain range itself to the areas around it. And uh, the way that actually happens uh, appears, based on the research that we've done and a growing body of research that other folks have done, um, actually appears to be controlled in part by literally what the microclimates are, where it rains, where it doesn't rain. Um, and in fact, this, uh, uh, this erosion along a front, along the southern flank of the Himalaya, where there's very, very heavy rainfall, uh, seems to be an extremely efficient way of uh, sort of removing that excess uh, gravitational potential energy, the excess mass of the mountain range. And the critical question is, how does material get to that erosion front? And one of the arguments that's made in this particular article and, and in uh, a lot of our research in general is that there are deep structures, faults, um, that go down into the middle part of the crust, down several tens of kilometers, that actually help convey material to that erosion front. The material down there is uh, is under so much pressure that it, it actually kind of flows. Mm -hmm. It's hot, and it's uh, it's hot because, as we know, temperatures tend to increase with depth in the earth. And when you get down to those levels, the material is very hot, and it behaves very much like what scientists refer to as a viscous fluid. Um, and so, even though the rate at which it flows is extremely extremely slow by our standards, by human standards, it flows nonetheless. And so. Over million-year time scales, uh, it's capable of flowing just like toothpaste or a putty. And it's flowing out to that front. Basically, the material moves toward that erosion front simply because that's the place that it's most efficiently removed from the system, and, and this excess gravitational potential energy can be dissipated. The analogy that I use in the article has to do with, with the reservoir that's backed up behind a dam. And if you uh, you know, if you have a breach in the dam, there's a tendency for the water to flow the through the breach in the dam, and basically that tendency is exactly the same process. It's the, the tendency of, of the excess gravitational potential energy of the, of the reservoir behind that dam being dissipated by flow of the water through the dam and downstream. And uh, one of the really neat things you talk about is that that flow is also building the front back up so the monsoon can never get over that mountain range. Right. I mean, we, we think that um, as that front builds up, it also tends to act as a barrier to the storms. It's, it's what meteorologists refer to as an orographic barrier to the storms. So that as the, the uh, monsoon rainstorms sweep out of the Bay of Bengal and come toward the Himalayan front, um, they basically can't get up and over the Himalaya and to the north toward the Tibetan Plateau. 
So they're trapped there, and it tends to squeeze out the moisture in the form of extremely high precipitation along the front. So as long as you're building the front up, you're actively trapping uh, the storm systems that produce the monsoon rainfall. The monsoon rainfall then causes extreme erosion along that particular front, and the extreme erosion on the front then feeds back into attracting more material to be brought to that particular uh, position by these structures that project down into the middle crust of the Tibetan Plateau. And, of course, as that material comes back up, builds the front a little bit higher, and the cycle starts all over again. Really interesting. Is this the first example that you know of, of of this kind of possible connection anywhere in the world? Well, people have made suggestions about these sorts of connections in other places, and, and I think the thing that's really special about the Himalayas, of course, they are the highest mountain range in the world, and they do form a remarkable orographic boundary. The rate of rainfall uh, in the uh, Indian monsoon is extremely high, um, and, and therefore, because that uh, particular um, event has such an impact on erosion in this particular part of the world, it's a very easy place to study this phenomenon. Dr. Hodges, thanks very much. You're very welcome. You take care. Kip Hodges' article, Climate and the Evolution of Mountains, is in the August Scientific American and on our website, www.siam.com. The website of his new school at Arizona State, the School of Earth and Space Exploration, is www.sese.asu.edu. We'll be right back. For breaking news about science and technology, visit www.siam.com slash news today. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, Apollo 11 astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin used a pen to replace a broken end of a circuit breaker, allowing them to take off from the moon. Story two, a New York doctor doing surgery in El Salvador stopped operating to donate his matching rare type blood to the patient. Story three, a Tomahawk cruise missile fell off a truck onto Interstate 95 about a mile from my house last week. And story four, researchers have found a drug that enhances athletic performance at high altitude, Viagra. We'll be back with the answer, but first, former astronaut Dr. James Bajan directs the Veteran Affairs National Center for Patient Safety. On last week's podcast, we talked about space stuff. I then asked him how he went from NASA to his current position. In 1999, I was uh, recruited by the, well, actually, I went there first in 98 to, to, uh, to the Department of Veterans Affairs, to the VA hospital system, basically, to uh, look at how patient safety was being looked at and suggest possible uh, techniques that I derived from my engineering background, my background at NASA, you know, being very familiar with very safety-type activities and what could be applied, and that was Dr. Ken Kaiser. They asked me to do that. And subsequent to a panel I chaired and the recommendations we made and some uh, projects I did at the time, uh, they decided they wanted to create a national center for patient safety and then uh, uh, recruited me and offered me, ultimately offered me the position, which I took in the very beginning of 1999. And then in 1999, there's this kind of bombshell publication. At the bombshell publication you're talking about is the Institute of Medicine report. Uh, and in it, one of the big things that people quote, a lot of uh, a lot of times uh, I hear all the time is that they they proposed that they thought that about 98 to 44,000 people died in a year as a result of medical error. Now they made many recommendations, and I think that the report really uh, did a lot to to make the healthcare community and the population uh, pay attention to this. But 
uh, we had done all virtually everything that had been recommended that would be pertinent to uh, to our hospital systems uh, already, and they had already been in place. So when we read it, it was really validating because we had identified this problem long before this report came out, and it had already taking taking uh, uh, some very specific measures to work our way in that direction. So for us, it was sort of ho hum. Can Can you briefly talk about what they identified as the problem for patient safety? They talked about medical error, and we didn't really look at it that way at all. We thought that was a sloppy way, or I personally thought it was a sloppy way to look at it because it implies, and many people even today erroneously look at it and say, well, people just make mistakes. If we get them to stop making mistakes, we'll be okay. Mm -hmm. And it's not that simple because medicine and healthcare, as in many industries, is very complex, and it's, it's seldom one single event or action that causes a problem. It's usually a whole chain of events. So, in fact, what we have to do is design a system by which it's harder to get into a problem. I mean, a good example I can give you is if you go back in the mid-'80s, uh, prior to that, any automatic transmission car anywhere in the world, certainly in the United States, all you had to do to take it out of park was to pull the gear selector from park to whichever gear you chose, reverse or drive. Right, but now you must put your foot on the brake. Correct. And, and the, other, the other reason we looked at it that way, that's a real system solution. The reason we looked at it that way is that even with, if you want to learn about something to fix it, people have to tell you. You have to be able to discover it. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, errors people make, they don't know they made them. Because to know it's an error, you have to know what the proper way or a, a more optimal way to do it. And many times people think they're doing it the optimal way. On the other hand, we took a much different approach. And we said the goal is not to prevent errors. That's a tactic. The goal, in fact, is to prevent harm to the patient. Right. Very important differentiation. Right. And, and we found things, for instance, with a pacemaker. After we changed that goal, we found in one of our uh, hospitals, uh, the very next week, in fact, after we were rolling out this training, that they had an intensive care unit, a pacemaker that would not function, an external pacemaker. This is one where they put the wire into your body that goes to the heart. Mm -hmm. And it's used, used for a temporary measure. Uh, and it had a, a message that came that said, error 004. And it would not pace the patient. They got desperate. They said, well, let's turn it off and on. As people sometimes will do with their computer, they'll just turn it off all together and reboot. They tried that. It still didn't work. And unfortunately, one of the other nurses came up and said, wait a minute, I think there's another device here not being used. Let's get that. She brought it up, hooked it up to the same leads coming out of the patient. It showed no error message. It did pace the patient. The patient did fine. So that was a close call. Now, in the old days, this had happened to them before, and they just said, well, this was broken. The other unit was broken. They sent it to engineering to be you know, fixed. Engineering would get it, look in the manual, and it said, oh, if error in the 004 is displayed, just pull the battery out and then put it right back in. The same battery. The same battery. And this is because the memory, as in some devices, is always powered by the battery. The on-off switch does not affect that. And the only way to basically flush the memory is to do a hard power down, which the only way you can do that is to remove the battery. And they would do this. It would only take them a few seconds. You know, it's just like your remote control for your TV. You know, they just took it off their fingernail. Boom, pull out the battery, put it back in, and then uh, they'd send it back to the floor. The nurses would get it often in the same shift. And prior to this, they would say, wow, aren't those engineers just wizards? Mm -hmm. They fixed it so quickly. Well, now when this happened, instead of thinking it broke and I'll just give it to somebody else to fix, they said, why is this happening? And when they looked into it and the, and the engineers told them what they were doing, they go, this isn't right. And they called us and we got involved, talked to the company, and the company's response uh, basically was, well, if people just read the book, they could just take that battery out, put it back in, and be no problem. And we said, but they don't know that. 
and think about what would happen to the patient if, in this case, they didn't have a spare pacemaker. Mm-hmm. And this is the most widely used pacemaker worldwide for the previous eight years. So it wasn't like just a couple patients had been affected. So they were really uninterested in doing anything. Well, we immediately labeled all our pacemakers right by the display. It said, if Aero 004 takes a battery in and out. But we continued to work with them, so they finally agreed to change their software so that that couldn't happen anymore. Right, right. Which is the real solution. And by doing that, nobody was really hurt in the, in the, in the particular instance that brought it to our attention. But yet it got fixed for everybody, sort of like the shift lock example. So that's the kind of thing that we really work towards to have mechanisms and tools we develop for people to be able to do a good systems analysis, uh, create an environment where people aren't punished for reporting problems. Because if you punish people for reporting a problem, they're unlikely to tell you. The website of the National Center for Patient Safety is www.patientsafety.gov. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, Apollo 11 astronauts saved by a pen. Story two, surgeon donates blood in middle of operation. Story three, Tomahawk cruise missile on I-95. And story four, Viagra enhances athletic performance at high altitude. Time's up. Story four is true. Viagra was found to improve athletic performance at the equivalent of high altitude, according to a study published in the Journal of Applied Physiology. The research was done with subjects riding stationary bicycles in low oxygen conditions. Hopefully they weren't wearing Lycra bike shorts. Speaking of low oxygen, story one is true. On the moon, in a story that's just being revealed after almost four decades, Aldrin and Armstrong jammed a pen into a hole to modify a broken circuit breaker. That's according to the the British newspaper The Daily Mirror. Ballpoint pens also work to open numerous kinds of bike locks, and as all MASH viewers know, there's nothing like a ballpoint pen when you need to perform an emergency tracheotomy. Speaking of emergency surgery, story two is true. The Associated Press reports that a New York doctor recently was doing surgery on a boy with rare B-negative blood in El Salvador when the boy needed a transfusion. Dr. Sam Weinstein of Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx is also B-negative, so he turned the scalpel over to his colleagues and donated blood on the spot. And speaking of the Bronx, this story about a Tomahawk cruise missile falling off a truck on Interstate 95 in the Bronx about a mile from my house is totally bogus. Because what fell off the truck on I-95 and snarled traffic for hours last Friday morning only looked exactly like a Tomahawk cruise missile. The 3,000-pound Tomahawk lookalike was a dud used to train Navy personnel to handle them, according to the New York Times. But it does a great impression of the real thing. A bomb squad detective said he got a call from a cop on the scene who said, Look, I'm not kidding. I got a cruise missile sitting in the middle of I-95. The detective also said that he'd seen mortar shells, live grenades, and a torpedo washed up in the Rockaways, but that the phony tomahawk was the biggest. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm John Rennie, Editor-in-Chief of Scientific American. Our magazine is now available in a digital edition. Not only does your Scientific American digital subscription include the full contents of every new printed issue, it also entitles you to access our digital archives from 1993 to the present. For more information, visit www.siamdigital.com. Well, 
Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank <laughs> you.